God is a great God. And as we uh, move along in our uh, Corinthian epistle, our study of that, we uh, move to the end of chapter 3. And I like the title this morning, All Things Belong to You. You guys like that title? Sound good? All Things Belong to You. But we have to first start with uh, the negative sense and uh, that there is sin in the church. Sin in Corinth, and there's still sin in the body of Christ today. Sin always divides. And uh, sin divides us, even in our own selves, we're divided a lot. We do the things that we don't want to do. Uh, our spiritual lives are not the way that we would like sometimes. And then also, sin divides us between man and man. People are at odds with each other. That's, that's a constant thing that's happening. And then sin also, and most of all, and ultimately, sin divides man from God. And that's the real problem. Now, the main problem at Corinth is this issue. It's dealing with pride. It's dealing with uh, divisions. He deals with divisions in the church, first of all, because uh, the rest of them will fall in line right after that. Specifically, the problem is boasting in who they follow and what they know. They're boasting in men. And uh, I've seen that uh, quite a bit on... uh, Most of you maybe not be familiar with Facebook. Some of you are. But uh, some people get on there and they'll rant with their favorite kind of uh, doctrine or favorite kind of teacher, and then everybody else is wrong. And uh, there's a lot of boasting that uh, we find out. Bob was just saying, yeah, whenever he sees that, he just drops them. <laughs> you, know, just get, you don't have to worry about anything. You just, what do you call it? Is it defriending them? Or what are they, <laughs> deleting them? <laughs> and whenever they say just awful things, you know, about other people in Christ or just boasting things of, of their own, it's like, well, I don't want to look at that. I don't want to read that. And that guy constantly is, is doing that. So. Uh, fortunately, you can do that, but not always in in the uh, what can we say the real world. <laughs> Can't we always do that? Can't delete people. Boom, boom, they're out of here, you know. But um, at least there we, we'd have that freedom, and sometimes it's very wise to do that. But um, we're moving kind of, of to that conclusion uh, of the division thing. We've been on that since chapter one, and then chapter two, and chapter three, and you'll see it even in chapter four a little bit, and then they'll move on with other things, but. They really needed to show the results of uh, how they'd been converted. What had happened to them. They should have been manifesting uh, the very grace of God in their lives. And instead, I want you to catch this. Catch this line here. They brought the spirit of Corinth into the church. Rather than taking the spirit of Christ out into Corinth. Can I say that again? Because that's good. If you don't learn anything else today, this would be good to learn. The Corinthian Christians brought the spirit of Corinth into the church rather than taking the spirit of Christ out into Corinth. Now, how does that convert over to us today? Can we actually bring the spirit of the world right on into the church? And rather than going out into the world and taking the Spirit of Christ, 
uh, we fail to do that, right? We can. That's what I think that uh, as we proceed through here, that that's how we want to uh, view ourselves. We want to take Christ out into the world, and uh, that is so key. So he closes in, especially at uh, verse 21 in chapter 3, and I'll read this section in a moment. It says, Therefore, let no one boast in men. And of course, the title is, All Things Are Yours. Isn't that interesting? He says, Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Well, what does that mean? Well, that's what we'll get to. That's what we're going to do for the next uh, hour here. But uh, they had a prideful view. They had a prideful view of what all the wisdom was that they had obtained... And so they took that in and they boasted over other people that were in the body of Christ, who were the brothers and sisters. And uh, Paul is now going to have to show them the view that they really have to have. They had a wrong view, a wrong perspective, and so now he gives a warning. As we uh, get into this text, let's, uh, let's read this. And in honor of God's Word, I'm going to have you stand up one more time. And let's read this. This is... Uh, God's Word, and uh, we take this as precious. This is what is most important, His Word. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written, He catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All are yours. And you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this Word. And uh, we pray that a blessing go out here and that Your Word would make an impact on our lives. And uh, just give me the strength to be able to bring out what Your your truth is that can uh, change our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen. You can be seated. And we look at uh, their prideful view. They have it divided up really in two parts today. Their prideful view, and then Paul uh, corrects them and brings them to the point that they... Uh, have a correct view, uh, prideful view to a correct view, and they are deceived. That's their problem. He starts off that uh, with, in verse eight, 18, let no one deceive himself. They're deceiving themselves is really what has happened. It comes down to um, their own thinking. The warning was that you better not be deceived. The self-deception can come in. The nature of the deception is the wisdom of the world. That's the whole nature of this. This is this is their problem, uh, and so they're they're deceived by that. They've already have had the wisdom of the world. They needed to give up the boasting uh, in the wisdom of men that they were bragging about. And uh, don't you be deceived in what you think to be wisdom. And so we get this part A. You're not as wise as you thought. <laughs> That's kind of like what Paul is saying there. You think you're wise, huh? Well, you're not. Uh, check this out. He says, and by the way, he gets into a key word here. Uh, if anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, in this present time, in this worldly wisdom, let him become a fool that he may become truly wise. So you have the word wise there. We know that that's a key word. We've been seeing this all the way in... This study, haven't we? You say, this sounds like... Dennis, are you repeating your message that you had a few weeks ago? <laughs> uh, the text is still there. It's, a, it's basically the same kind of thing, but Paul wants to make sure 
that uh, they nip this in the bud. I mean, this is really something serious. And I think we all can have a tendency to do that. That's what sin does. It wants to, to divide. Uh, the word for foolish there, I think, is interesting, uh, or, or fool, is moros. And you'll see it there on your, on your study sheets. And our, yeah, you got it right there. I heard that word, moron. That's how we get that. When you were kids, I imagine you used that word quite a bit. That moron, right? Moros is uh, the English or Greek word, but the English word comes right out of it. Uh, human wisdom is moronic as far as the Lord is concerned. That's, that's what human wisdom is to Him. It's, it's moronic. It's foolish. Human wisdom is foolish in the matters concerning God. Uh, people can have all the wisdom that uh, the world can ever have, and as far as God is concerned, if it's not concerning Him, ultimately, it's foolishness. Uh, what the world considers to be wise is what? Foolish. It's folly. Uh, go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 18. We've seen this before. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, those who are dying, those unbelieving uh, people out there who not trusted in Christ. The cross is foolishness, but they're dying. But to us who are being saved, if you've already been saved, you are being saved and you will be saved, right? But to us who are being saved right now, it's the power of God, the foolishness of the cross. So you see the language that Paul uses there. He says, oh, they think this is foolish, huh? Okay, this is uh, it's foolishness to the perishing, but it's the very power of God. And if you look in verse 25, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And of course, is God really foolish? No. But man takes it as that way. And weak? Is God weak? Well, of course not. Why do we sing all those songs about His power and His might and His strength and how great God is, right? If He has weakness and He's foolish. Well, that can't be, but that's the way that the world really sees. If you're, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, that's the way you see Christ to be. It's absolute foolishness. Hey, to be wise, to be truly wise, wise in Christ, you have to do things, you have to say things and uh, that actually seem to be the opposite of what the world wants to hear. Have you ever noticed that? Matter of fact, you have to say some things that are absolutely foolish to them. When you say something, you know how they're going to respond to it. Probably no. Then you might be surprised. They go, really? Can you tell me more about it? It doesn't happen too often, though, does it? wish it did. But whatever you say about Christ and really bring real truth home, people don't like that. And uh, might as well be a fool to them. And the boasting of men is the whole idea here, what they were doing. They were supporting boasting and, and the self-sufficiency. If it wasn't about some other man, it was about themselves. We see that later on in Corinth. And that's not wisdom at all. Anytime we have to tell people how good we are at something or what we uh, you know, pride ourselves in, then we've just blown everything because it's wisdom of the world. Um, boasting will take you nowhere. And uh, it says in 19, for the wisdom of the world is foolishness with God. And then he quotes out of the Old Testament here. For it is written. Paul does that quite frequently, doesn't he? 
I'm going to back this up about this wisdom of the world versus uh, God's view of what the wisdom of the world is foolishness. He says he catches the wise in their own craftiness. He'll always trap them in their own craftiness. Turn all the way back to Job, way back in the Old Testament, before the Psalms. And in Job 5, 13, we will see this quote that Paul used. Looks familiar, right? He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the counsel of the cunning comes quickly upon them. I think that's fascinating. In the last part of verse 13, the counsel of the cunning. Anybody that has an answer for your, your thinking, if they're not ultimately coming from the truth of God's Word, it's going to eventually make a turn. It might have some truth that comes straight from God's principles, and that's okay. But eventually, if they don't have the thinking that God has, it's going to sway away from the truth. And they're going to give you advice eventually that will be wrong. Uh, The counsel will be bad. Eventually it will. Even though they can be saying some right things that are actually really good, and it is truth, uh, watch out for the counsel of unbelievers. And God says He catches them in their own craftiness. He can see it. Sometimes we don't discern it when we see uh, somebody saying something. We don't quite catch it. Or we're not so sure what they're saying. But God does. And He'll catch them right there in the very place that they think they're so good at. Uh, the book of Esther, which is just uh, back before us here, before Job, in Esther chapter 7, another quote that Paul uses. And this is dealing with Haman. You remember Haman? Haman really was going to be responsible for killing all the Jews. He wanted them all wiped out. Boy, does that sound familiar. Haman was almost like a Hitler, wasn't he? And you've had people down through the years that wanted to wipe out the whole race. Because... um, Actually, Satan wanted them wiped out because God's plan would be uh, blown away. Of course, that can't happen. And so uh, God uses Esther, and uh, the plan comes about, and and we'll pick it up there in verse 7. Then the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stood before Queen Esther, pleading for his life. For he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. Now, Haman was the very one who was kind of like a right-hand man to the king. And he gave counsel and advice to the king. And he is the one that was uh, going to try to impress upon the king to get rid of the Jews. God uses Esther. We know the story, hopefully. And uh, if you don't, then uh, your homework today is go home and read the book of Esther. (laughs) It is quite a story. Uh, but you see the sovereignty of God all in there. The providence of God is is involved in this whole book of Esther, even though you don't see the name God in there once. But you know that that's Him all the way through as He sets this up. So now you have Queen Esther, who is a Jew, who has flipped the table over. And here is Haman now, who is going to be killed. 
Verse 8, when the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, will he also assault the queen while I am in the house? As the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Now Harbona, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, look, the gallows, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, the Jew, uh, Esther's uncle, right? who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. Then the king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, and the king's wrath subsided. Haman had this gallows, and he had prepared it for Mordecai, and Haman is the one that gets hung. And once again, God catches their wisdom and their craftiness. Don't you like that? God always makes things work out for good. They hang on their own gallows. Their plans, their own plans condemn them. A lot of plans, a lot of secret councils going on in our nation and in all the nations of the world. There are extreme demonic battles that are going on that we have no clue of what is happening. And there's going to be boundaries changed in this world. But you know what? God knows exactly what is happening and He knows exactly what He's going to do when He does it. And that gives me great comfort. Now we bring a little application here, right? He's going to take their very counsel and their very wisdom and hang them on their own gallows. And He's done that all through Scripture. We've seen that. So, the wisdom of man can take you to the far reaches of the universe. The wisdom of man can take us to the moon. But you know what? It gets him nowhere as far as God concerns, as far as salvation is concerned, on his own wisdom. God does this kind of thing. He knows the thoughts of the wise. And he knows their thoughts are futile. They're empty. And that's what he says here in Corinthians when he says... Uh, In verse 20, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that are futile. This is another Old Testament quote. This is right out of Psalms. We get to go to the Psalms today. Chapter 94, verse 11. Aren't you glad that you know the truth of God's Word? Of what goes on now? And some things that happen in the future, at least to take comfort in. We know what we don't know details, but we do know that God is going to get us through whatever we need to get through or whatever He's going to do. Psalm ninety four eleven, the Lord knows the thoughts of man. And he's talking about here that their kind of wisdom, the worldly wisdom without relying on him, that they are futile. Their thoughts are empty. Their thoughts are nothing. They're vain. And and we know that. But that's good to be reminded. No matter what's going on around us, folks, and there's a lot of crazy stuff, and uh, there's a lot of conspiracies going on. I really believe that. But no worry. No worry. Whatever you want, Lord, that's just great. Whatever you want to use me in that kind of situation, then just... 
Let's do it. So there's two kind of options you can go with. You can pursue the power and the wealth, the wisdom of the world, and all the influence that the world has. You can have all that. And these can drive you for a long way. But if you're a Christian, these kind of influences have been driven away by the gospel. We have the gospel. A gospel of grace. And we don't have to be driven by those things anymore. And by the way, the more you come closer to Christ, the the more that you find that you don't really need that kind of stuff anymore. Whatever that stuff is, that drive for this power or influence or money or whatever, that's not what we're here about. It's about the gospel. It's Christ crucified. Right? That's what Paul knew. We're no longer enslaved by those influences. And you've probably seen what God has done in your life if you were to compare it five, ten years ago, fifteen, twenty years ago. Look back, look at that. And you say, wow, God really did a work because my life was going somewhere else back then. Or I wasn't right on that, that line where He won me. Look where He put you. Isn't that great? Where He puts you in your daily walk. Wisdom. The true wisdom is revealed by the Gospel. And that reverses the driving influences that's out there. Sometimes we could be so restless. You know, we, we want to get to the top, you know. And when you become a Christian, you find out that that's not really that important anymore. Matter of fact, uh, it's not going to go into uh, the eternal kingdom, is it? It really doesn't mean anything. Now, the wisdom of God does, though. Uh, they were bringing the wisdom of the world into the church because they didn't understand the gospel. You've been graced. Look what God has given you. Look what God is doing. Look at the cross. They were, they were deceived. They were seduced. He's writing to Christians in Corinth. Christians. And they took the option of pursuing all those influences and all that wisdom that's out there. When believers look to particular answers like psychology for marital problems, let's say, you can go to a counselor, an unbeliever, and you're going to go seek wisdom for them to tell you what you can do in your marriage. Now, an unbeliever is not going to consult God about this. They're not going to pray about it with you. They're not going to give you wisdom and say, hey, let's go over to Ephesians 5 over here. Let's go over back here to Genesis 1 and 2, 3. Uh, They're not going to go to those texts, are they? They're not going to go to 1 Peter. They're not going to go to Colossians. They're going to tell you what they think and what they have been driven by as far as the world says. And they're going to figure out your marital problems. Do you know what most of them tell you today? You know what the, one of the first things they will tell a couple to do? Get a divorce. At least that's what I understand uh, one counselor said to a couple. That's the first thing that he said. Have you considered divorce? <laughs> they went and paid money to hear that? God's Word would be the exact opposite. Personal problems. Do we go to somebody that's an unbeliever about personal problems? Well, they might have some truths, but eventually it's going to take you down the wrong road. 
Moral problems. Would you go to an unbeliever to seek out moral problems? I, I think a disaster is just awaiting if we look to that kind of counsel. When Christian looks, when a Christian looks to all the popular methods that are going on for expediency to, to get this thing done, what they're doing is they're taking their spiritual lives that God has given them and they're undermining their spiritual lives. Technology and science, it's tremendous, it's great. Thank the Lord for it. There's a lot of reasons that we can use that for. There's extreme advances that have been made in our time. But regarding God's plan and human ideas, ultimately, they're worthless. Now you say, what? Don't use those? No, I'm not saying that at all. Use every instrument that you can to glorify God and take out the gospel and and further your own uh, walk with the Lord. Whatever God gives you, man, He's given us uh, just thousands of different tools. Fantastic. But them alone doesn't do anything. But if it's something that we see God in it, I don't know where he's taking it, but this is this is really neat that he's given. I, I can use this. How can I use it? Uh, well, he'll he'll open it up, right? But in themselves, they're worthless. The 19th and 20th centuries created some of the most brilliant thinkers this world has ever known. You know, when I say these thinkers, most of these thinkers were not Christians, but they were great thinkers, and they thought themselves into the very traps that destroyed them. If you're not a Jonathan Edwards thinking on the things of God, and you're not a Christian, well, you're going to start thinking on things that are that first start with some brilliant thoughts, and you don't give God credit, and you start thinking and thinking, and you all of a sudden turn away from God. And there were theologians, people who claimed to be Christians, that saw the Bible. And they started thinking so much that they said, this couldn't have come from God. This book was written by men and men only. So they rejected the Scriptures. They modified the Scriptures. And these were men that were leading the churches at the time. Especially all over Europe. And of course it came to America. And we've had our own uh, devolution in that. But they started saying that Moses didn't write the Pentateuch. Daniel didn't write Daniel. And before you know it, you find out none of those writers wrote any of those books. And it's all a fairy tale. And it really doesn't matter. Then you get to the Gospels and you see all the heresies that they have there about Jesus Christ. That He's not the only way. And that He really was not God. That He really didn't resurrect. Those things started to culminate in the uh, 19th and 20th centuries. And definitely here today, aren't they? We have our liberal churches. The mainline denominations all have their liberal thinking. And they just decimated God's Word. Needless to say, they had a very, very, very low view of Scripture. Philosophy cannot bring people to God. You see where it eventually takes you? It will take one down the road and destroy them. Philosophy cannot bring people to God. Philosophy cannot save people. Philosophy can't even show you how to live. It will say, well, you can do anything you want. Whatever you think. Whatever's in your own mind. 
When people trust in that kind of human understanding, they have the wrong view of what true wisdom is. Without Scripture, you know what we are? We're fools. Without Scripture, without His truth. We have empty thoughts. Our thoughts are futile. No matter how much we think and high technology thinking, if, if we are not thinking for the glory of God, if we're not having Him present in our own lives, that, those kind of thoughts that don't agree with Scripture are worthless. Now, the root of boasting seems to be an inflated view of one's own wisdom. Their own wisdom inflated. Or their teacher that they, they like to follow. I'm of Paul. I'm of Paulus. I'm of Cephas. As Paul opposes it, he says that you're not as wise as you think you are and your supposed wisdom actually is down a dead-end street. And it's, it's nothing. Uh, for the wisdom of the world is foolishness with God. He quotes those Old Testament passages. And he says, Therefore, net, no, let no one boast in men. You know what I think? Why some people have to boast and get on this this side of people and get in with people, you know. Um, it, sometimes it's just insecurity. Their own vulnerability. Their fear in this world. And um, the control. Uh, it's, it's beyond them. They have no control. It's, it's way out beyond them. And it, it threatens their happiness. So they have to fit in with a particular group of people or, or a particular leader that isn't necessarily true. And then you have another force that these people have everything under control. And they've got it, and their self-sufficiency is going to solve all the problems, and they don't need anybody. Uh, that's called self-deception. Either way, you have the extremes there. Um, any way you look at it, they're dishonoring Christ. One says he doesn't need Christ. The other one says... Christ can't help me. You know, I'm you know, I'm so far gone, Christ can't do anything anyway. The one looks strong, the other one looks weak, but they both demean the, the very grace of God. So to the self sufficient person he says, Your wisdom is folly, give it up. Become a fool. <laughs> you have the wisdom become a fool then, right? To the ones who are insecure and threatened, he says, boasting in men is a really cheap substitute for inheriting the universe. You are actually inheriting the universe and you are, in this situation, uh, relying upon something that you don't really need. It's weakness. Don't you realize that God has made all things to serve your joy? And that's where we get into this next part here. Part two. Here's the correct view. He's shown what their view was. And he says, no, we've got to correct this. We've got to train your way of thinking now and turn it into what real truth is. It's cloudy. Let's look at the truth. He says, all things are yours. They need an adjustment, don't they? You ever need an adjustment? Every day we need an adjustment. As soon as we get up, we need an adjustment in, in our thinking, in our thought process. We go to the Lord in prayer and think about His things, and then the rest of the day, we are praying always, or we're God-conscious, knowing that He's there always. Paul has given reasons for not boasting, and he has a command not to boast so far, right? By the way, we sang that song. What was it? I will boast in the Lord our God. 
looks like the root of the problem is very different from the root in verses 18 through 20. The reason Paul gives in verse 21 here right at the end, all things are yours, it sounds really strange, but it's reassuring. Uh, I think it, it gives great comfort. The reasons for not boasting in verses 19 and 20 were threatening. God catches the wise in their craftiness, and the thoughts of the wise are futile. The tone is warning and alarm, isn't it? And now all of a sudden it's like right in the middle of a verse he just shifts and goes to a different gear. And all of a sudden you see the grace of God just exploding onto the scene after He gives a warning. You ever notice that throughout Scripture? Isn't it great that He can give us warnings? Don't go around down this route, but I want to tell you, here is something really good. Don't substitute for something less than what God has to offer. So this is where he's at. It's really reassuring. It's full of relief. It's full of hope. I mean, the sun comes out. Have you ever uh, seen it where it's really cloudy and dark one day? And with a matter of like seconds, all of a sudden the sun just bursts out and the clouds just move away real quick. Kind of interesting how that happens. Well, that's what's happening here. All things are yours. He gives indictment. And then he comes back and, and gives deliverance. What a God. That's the work of saving grace. That's gospel, folks. Bad news, good news. Even in your walk in Christ, bad news. Here's warnings. Here's where you're going. But here's the good news. Always there. If you think you're wise, he says, become a fool. Here's the answer. Become a fool. Deliverance. All things are yours. What does that mean? Well, starting with the context, first of all, their problem was Paul. No, Apollos. No, Peter. Somebody else. Jesus. All the godly leaders are ours. Yeah, Paul and Apollos and Cephas and Christ had their own little... Divisional cults there, in a way. He says, receive them as gifts from God. All of those guys. They've been given from God. Leaders belong to God. God gives the leaders to the people. They were given by God to us, for us. Leaders like the biblical writers. Paul, Peter, John. Think of all those. And then think through history. Think of the early church, and then Augustine, and then Luther, and then Calvin, and then Knox, people like Edwards, Charles Spurgeon, all his writings. All these guys, they have been given to us, they are ours. And all the present day teachers that are very biblical. They're yours. They're yours too. You can have them. They're yours. All things are yours. And that's kind of where, where he's starting. There. They just didn't have one leader. Listen, Corinth had Paul to start with. Think about it. They had the great Apostle Paul. Can you imagine sitting under the Apostle Paul? And then Apollos comes in with his eloquence and great knowledge that he had. And they sat under Apollos. 
Now, Cephas, I don't believe that he went to Corinth. We don't have any history recording on that, but um, some must have really uh, taken to who Peter was. They wanted to follow his writings and wanted to get his letters, you know, whatever, uh, something like that. But um, every one of those guys belonged to the Corinthians. Now, the Christians can learn from really good teachers. God in our time has given us really good teachers, really good books from all of history all the way up into time now. They are means of grace. Just wonderful. There are many different varieties that he gives. So theology is is, uh, very important to us, isn't it? Now, if they're Christians, they belong to God. And they are our brothers. Now, here's where it gets a little bit tricky. Even a Calvinist can learn from Wesley. <laughs> I wouldn't ordinarily say that. But I have read many quotes from Calvinists who are really were very strong in the Lord. And you can see the relationship. And they've actually made quotes from Wesley. And if you look at the Wesley's hymns, you know, of course, it's John and Charles. Charles wrote most of those hymns. But um, my, how sovereign can you get? You've seen some of those hymns. I mean, they're, and they are sung in very good Reformed churches today. Uh, John Wesley, Charles Wesley professed to be Arminians, and they knew what an Arminian was. And a lot of that theology we wouldn't uh, want to take in. But there are a lot of things that God has gifted them with that we can use. All things are ours. And that's, that's what I'm saying. I'm not saying be, become a great fan of Wesley uh, because I think there was some damage done in what he brought here to the American church. But I do know there were some things there that um, God used through him. Would I call him a non-Christian? No, I would never say that. Well, he's not a Calvinist. Well... We can uh, on Facebook. I've seen people be such Calvinists; they become so much hyper Calvinists that you cannot be a Christian unless you're Calvinist. And I replied back, I, I guess I wasn't a Christian until later on in my life. Uh, then, whenever uh, uh, I, as I came through a church that was ignorant of those kind of teachings and the absolute sovereignty of God and such, uh, then that means that I wasn't a Christian until many years later. I didn't take offense to it. But uh, I noticed I didn't get a comment back on that. But um, many of them really think that if you don't have that particular knowledge, if you don't have the knowledge of the five points of Calvinism, you know, and that's not necessarily Calvin uh, to know what really Calvinism. Yet you need to read all the writings of John Calvin. It wasn't boiled down to five points, but if you want to get a handle on some things, it helps, you know. But uh, I've heard people say, well, they don't know the five points of Calvinism. They're not a Christian. Man, that's making quite a sweeping judgment upon people. If that be the case, how are we saved anyway? We're saved by grace. So I think we have to be careful. Uh, I think we look at the opportunities that we can and say, hey, I'd like to get them more in tune with what Scripture says to that individual, but I would never, ever say that they were not Christians because they were not a, um, reformed in their views. Because I know many people who have become Christians after that. So... I think that we can profit out of, out of this sense in this text here uh, that I, I need to take note of this and, and be humbled by that because sometimes I can become very prideful in that, in that sense. So I have to be careful. 
Um, I know God uh, is going to work in those individuals. But we should profit from all faithful leaders that God has given. God sends us all of these people, the Pauls and the Paulus and the Cephas. If the, Christian, if the Corinthian Christians would have understood and followed all of these leaders, all of them say, hey, they're ours. They would not have had any division, would they have? Not only are there godly leaders, now here's where we get into a neat part too. Everything is ours. Taking the context, I think ultimately, first of all, it's saying, okay, these leaders. But then he's going to say it's all ours and he extends it on out as far as he can. The world, life, death, things present, things to come, all are yours. Oh, what a positive upbeat. Look in Romans 8, verse 17. And of children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, and that we may also be glorified together. We're joint heirs with Christ. Verse 28, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. That's that great verse. Boy, what a promise. We have that. We have even the bad things that seem to work against us and God says, I'm going to make it good. You don't see it right now, but I'm going to make it good. I'm going to make it really good. Look in John 17, 22. This is, this is Jesus speaking here, folks. <laughs> this is not me speaking here. Look, John 17, 22. And the glory which you gave me, that's Jesus Speaking to the Father, I have given them, I've given them glory. Why? That they may be one just as we are one. He's praying for unity. Oh, I think that's the idea that Paul has for Corinth. I think he wants them to be one, doesn't he? We get into into Ephesians 4, you'll see the same thing. You have all that doctrine, all what God has done, you get in Ephesians 4 and He starts talking about one faith, one baptism, one, one, one. Love, unity in the church. That's how it works. Wow. And there's Jesus praying that would be one. Glory had been given to them. Look in 2 Corinthians 4.15. For all things are for your sakes. Catch that, guys. This is gospel. This is the gospel. Look at this. For all things are for your sakes. For you and you and you and you and you and you and you. Every one of you. Everything that comes in your life and what all you have and possess and everything, that's all yours. Grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Wow. What a verse. Everything's for your sake. All things together work for good. For us who love Him. Matthew 5.5, 5, Sermon on the Mount. Sounds like uh, we're speaking positive thinking here. <laughs> this is God's positive thinking. This is God's esteem. Mm. Blessed are the meek. Why? For they shall inherit the earth. Did, have you thought about that before? You're going to inherit the earth. What did First Corinthians or um, Romans eight say? We are inheritors. 
with Jesus Christ. Here he says, we will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. Inherit the earth. The list just expands. All things are ours. All human existence. The world. Even despite all the tyrannies that's happening with Christians all over the world who are in slavery, who are in bondage, and the tyranny is over them. We are seeing some things on YouTube, some of the things that are happening to Christians and being burnt to death by uh, the Muslims. It's happening. But despite all that tyranny that's theirs, all things are yet theirs. In the kingdom, we will rule earth and possess it. We will inherit it. Uh, We will be, uh, as Christ will be ruling with a rod of iron, we will also be ruling with Him and judging angels, it says in Corinthians. What does all that mean? I can't fathom it. Uh, But even now, even in this present age, even though the prince of the power of the air rules and in John it says the whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one, our Heavenly Father made this world. He made it for us. We live in it now. It's for our good, even some of the worst tribulation because He is refining us and refining us and refining us until we are in His image. As far as life is concerned, it means eternal life. God's own life is in our life. Peter mentions that. Death. He says death here in Corinthians. Even death is ours. What what does that mean? What's going on there? What's going on there, Paul? Life, then death. Well, if you're a Christian, death has been defeated. It's done. And we know that Christ uh, did that. Paul said, for to me, to live is Christ. That's life. That's good. But to die is gain. It's even better. (laughs) Because we get to be with Him. Things present, he says here. Or things present or things to come. Things present. That would take in the now. The good. The bad. The painful things. The disappointments of life. Our health, good or bad. Even grief. All those things that we take in, it's for us. It's for us. It's good. God's working it out. Don't go around saying, oh boy, that was the greatest thing. You know, that guy died down there. That was, that was my uncle. It's a good thing. You know, be careful about how we say things. <laughs> we have to be uh, careful on that. But we know that ultimately, God is going to work that uh, for good. Painful. It can be. Or it can be really good. But these are used by our, our great God for our greater good. We can't see that sometimes. And I know we struggle with it. And man, we can say, where was God in that one? Where is He? I don't hear Him. I don't see Him. I'm about ready to bust here, Lord. I don't see it. He says, it's there. Wait. Or you may not even hear it. You may not hear, everything's okay. You don't hear a thing. Has that ever happened? God ever been quiet for you? He's working that out good too. Things to come. That's the things that we don't have now. They're the heavenly blessings that we will 
see ultimately. We just have a glimpse of it now. Just a slither of a glimpse. This is what trust is all about. This is faith. When we realize all these things are ours, why would we ever boast in the things of the world? Why would we boast in men? Well, I'm a Paul. I'm a Paul. Why would they do that when they have all of those guys? Yeah, that's that. He's my man. He's my guy. He's my guy too. I have him. Yeah, you know, I like uh, some of the present day teachers. Alistair Begg. He's my guy. I like John MacArthur. He's my guy. Man, I've, I've learned probably uh, much from him back in the '80s and '90s about expository preaching and many things. He's my guy. Alistair Begg, John, uh, John Piper, he's my guy. He's being under attack by a lot of people right now. I know in some things I don't quite understand what's happening there, but he's my man. Uh, uh, R.C. Sproul, he's my man. Man, there's so many things I learned about sovereignty of God from him, and I still learn from him. And uh, she can just go on and on. And then all through the historical guys that I try to draw from, you know, and uh, your Edwards and your Luthers and your Calvins and on. You know, our favorite people. All through the years, and all the way up to now. Those are our guys. That's my guy. He's been given to me. He's been given to you. Right? And you don't have to have all those guys. There's other, other guys that have made an influence on you. And then I can think of, oh, or Erwin Lutzer. Oh, he's my guy. Right? And, and what's, what's really great, somebody can be, hey, that's the one, and then another one can come along and say, that's, that's mine. That's my favorite. It, it, it turns out to be, well, they're all your favorite. Matter of fact, you've probably heard me every time I start a new book, I say, or a, a passage on Monday Night Bible study, this is the greatest passage in all of the Bible. <laughs> I imagine you caught it by now. They're all my favorite. Well, they should be. As I study, they, they start to become my favorite. Maybe they weren't before. <laughs> Speaking of Jonathan Edwards, whenever he was 17, 18, something like that, he had a sermon. Can we learn from a 17-year-old man? 17-year-old young man. Three points. You ready for the three-point Jonathan Edwards sermon this morning? Ready? Okay. If you are a Christian, bad things turn out for good. His second point was, the good can never be taken away from you. What about the bad? Yeah. Those can be, can't they? Number three, the best things are yet to come. Ooh, that goes against the grain of your best life now. I Osteen. Now, the best things are yet to come. And so we see here, uh, whether Paul or Paulus or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. That's the second time he said that. All things are yours. All are yours. Don't you get it, he says? You worry about the things of the world, all the things that's going on. on. Listen, you own it. Get your thinking right. About life. I don't know what I'm supposed to do in life. And life has, you know, life is hard. Yeah, God is good though. <laughs> death. Oh, death can make people scared. The future. People all wired out all the things that can happen. And he says, you own it all. All that's yours. Boy, you start thinking the way that Paul wanted to think, and all of a sudden that stuff, those worries don't really mean anything, do they? What are we worrying about? It's a sin to worry. You know what? We belong to Christ. Look at this. Right in verse 23. And you are Christ. All things belong to us, and we are Christ. We belong to Him. You know what? That's the greatest motive 
that there ever could be for unity because each one of you belong to Christ. I belong to Christ. We all belong to Christ. We belong to each other. We're in the body. We're in the temple. 1 Corinthians 6.17 talks about us being the temple. There, uh, you think about you can be uh, it can be individuals. And also in Corinthians, it presents it as the whole body of Christ. We looked at that last week. Um, John 17, 9 and 10, he prays for the unity. 21 through 23, he prays for unity. There must be something to that when Jesus prayed for the body of Christ to have unity. And he says, work on it. Maintain it. Maintain that unity. That's what Ephesians uh, 4 will be talking about. Maintaining unity. You have, to have, you have to have a maintenance man in a building, right? He has to maintain that place to keep it up. So that's what we're, we're to do. We don't make the unity. God already has done that. But we have to maintain it. Now, the last phrase. And Christ is God's. Christ belongs to God. He said, oh, I thought He was God. Yeah, but He belongs to God. We're tied together in an eternal oneness with the threeness. The three, the one. With the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we have to understand our spiritual unity that we are in Christ who owns us and He gives everything back to the Father and everything is going to be made complete. That's perfect unity. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is the book that we're in. And he actually, after covering all the problems, talks about the resurrection. And that was a problem too. 1 Corinthians 15, 26, and he says this, The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. That seems to be the most powerful enemy that there is. And he says, he's going to destroy that too. For he has put all things under his feet. Everything has been put under the feet of Christ. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son Himself will all be also be subject to Him who put all things under Him, that God may be all in all. Everything comes to a completeness. There should be no cause for factions or disunity when we relate to the unity of the Trinity right now. Ultimately, we'll see that there will never be any disunity again in that time. So, what are we going to do? Let's take the Spirit of Christ out into the world rather than letting the world come into us. That's our battle. It's a hard battle. We all battle that every day. Let's pray.